Well, good evening, everyone. I am so glad to be with you all uh, here tonight, even in this unconventional manner. Uh, just, um, just in case you're distracted by the fact that I'm appearing to you all through a recording rather than preaching to you live, the reason why I am preaching this evening's message to you uh, via recording, even though I am at church, is because I'm trying to balance two important ministry obligations, ministering the word to you all uh, and fulfilling my duty as the youth pastor um, downstairs, uh, being a little more present with, uh, with the uh, middle school and high school groups. But tonight it's going to be high school. Uh, I'm really grateful to Pastor Ray for agreeing to let me preach in this way so that I can uh, continue to minister to you, even though I have uh, other uh, ministry obligations that I want to that I uh, want to attend to, as well. Uh, I do wish that I could be with you live, but um, yeah, today just uh, won't be able to do it. However, uh, later this evening, when I am um, when I am done with uh, with high school fellowship, I will make it a priority to come up to the sanctuary to spend some time with those of you who are still here. Now, that being said, let's get into our study for this evening. As I mentioned last week, over the next few weeks, we will be doing a mini-series within our dating series to address the critical issue of purity in our lives. Now, some of you might think that four weeks of messages on purity might be overkill, and I promise, I promise that while some of the things that I might say uh, may have uh, while also some of the things I might say may have some overlap, we are aiming to uh, study different nuances of purity as they apply to, to dating um, and to our lives, really. So last week, what we studied uh, um, in, in, um, in our sermon was purity in general. Today, our goal is to explore guarding our hearts. And since this is a topical message, we're going to be looking at multiple texts this evening as we seek to draw out what the Bible has to say about guarding our hearts. Uh, even though we are starting, um, or even though we are looking at multiple passages this evening, we're, we'll, we'll launch from Proverbs 4.23. Proverbs 4.23 says this, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this evening, for allowing for us to be together here at the church to worship you together. And we pray that as we uh, think about what it means to guard our hearts, to watch over our hearts, that Lord, you would be glorified as we uh, try and tighten up our understanding of what that means and what it looks like in the context of all of our relationships and um, yes, our dating relationships as well. We pray that you would be honored uh, in the preaching of your word, Lord, as your son said, we pray. Amen. Well, uh, when you hear those words, guard your heart, or what are the first things that come to your mind? Well, if you've grown up in the church over the last 30 years, you're likely thinking about guarding your emotions uh, or being careful in your interactions with members of the opposite sex. We might have been told something to the effect of, you should stop being so friendly to the guys because you might lead them on. Or you should be careful on, of how much you talk to girls because you might lead them on. And for some of you, this made a lot of sense. And so the corrections were made and the avoidance began. And if there was no avoidance, that's, that's good. That's good. Right? But perhaps, perhaps there was unnecessary suspicion towards those who talked to you um, people who were uh, from the opposite, gen uh, opposite gender, opposite sex. Why are you talking to me? I'm not interested in dating. And granted, these are generalizations of what happened among many Christians when we were told by well-meaning parents and counselors and friends to guard our hearts. For those of you who did not grow up in the church, I'm sure this sounds pretty bizarre to you. you know, why can't guys and girls just be friends? Why is there a separation between the two parts? Uh, and you know what, maybe for some of you who, who were a part of the church, you had a conscious awareness of the importance of guarding your hearts. Maybe you wrestled with that idea too. Why is it so weird? Why can't we just be friends? 
Um, but uh, you just live with it because that's how we do things. And yeah, I know some of you who are here tonight, you're, you're just hoping, you're just hoping that other people here this evening are just going to get on board with guarding their hearts so we can avoid all the drama. Now, whatever the case may be for you here tonight, our aim in our study is to understand why we emphasize guarding our hearts and to restore proper balance to how it is applied to relationships leading up to dating and beyond. And so we're going to do that this evening by asking two questions that will help us, uh, that will help guide our exploration of guarding our hearts. Two questions that will guide our exploration of guarding our hearts. These questions are, why do we emphasize our hearts? And two, how can we guard our hearts? Okay, why do we emphasize our hearts and how can we guard our hearts? The first question, why do we emphasize our hearts? Well, the idea of our hearts figuratively being a major part of how we are, uh, of, sorry, of who we are is often taught in churches, but it is also something that the world believes in too. If you were to ask a person who tends to be a little more emotional how they would describe themselves, they would possibly tell you, I wear my emotions on my sleeves. However, they could also say, I wear my heart on my sleeves. Additionally, um, whenever people are wondering what they ought to do, the common counsel that is given is, listen to your heart. What does your heart tell you? And this has been rephrased by a popular science fiction franchise as search your feelings. You know them to be true or trust your feelings. You know them to be true. But why? Why do both the church and the world emphasize the importance of our hearts when we're just talking about our emotions? Well, it's because reason number one, our hearts are our mission control center for life. Our hearts are our mission control center for life. Now, like a lot of things, the world has plagiarized what the Bible has long taught about mankind and distorted it for their own purposes, but that's another sermon for another day. Biblically speaking, the word heart does not just describe our, our emotions or uh, even the physical organ that is beating in our chest, keeping us alive. It's also been used throughout the scriptures to describe our will, what we purpose to do, and our thinking, in addition to our desires and our feelings. And as I'm sure you've heard me say before, God has made us to be thinking, feeling, and choosing beings. And this is a part of what it means to be made in the image of God. Now, we don't have time to look at a lot of the different references here when it comes to uh, the biblical support for why we are thinking, feeling, and choosing beings, but I'm just going to leave you with a few breadcrumbs so that you can study these things on your own. In terms of thinking, in Matthew 9:4, Jesus had just healed a paralytic man, and the scribes, the religious lawyers, they saw and heard what Jesus did in healing the man, and they thought in their hearts, that Jesus had blasphemed by telling the man that his sins were forgiven when he healed him. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said this, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? There's another text that we can look at that uh, ascribes thinking and, and knowledge to our hearts, and that would be 2 Corinthians 4.6. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul is comparing God's action of making the gospel known to what had happened previously in creation, describing God as the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, right? So our hearts are, are, are able to know and understand God's glory when we know Jesus Christ. So our hearts are thinking, and they're able to learn. And so that's what we see when we think about our hearts being thinking. 
kind of hearts. Our hearts are also capable of feelings. Our hearts are also capable of feelings. In John 14, Jesus, knowing that his, that his disciples were discouraged because they knew that he was about to be betrayed, said to them, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And a couple chapters later in John 16, Jesus talks to the, to the disciples further about his death, but he also includes the hope of what is to come in his resurrection. He says in verse 6 of John 16, 6, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So Jesus is acknowledging that grief is, a, is an emotion that can be experienced in the heart. But not just grief, not just grief. Uh, if later, if you just slide down to verse uh, 22, it says, uh, therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your uh, joy away from you. So our hearts, they're capable of feeling turmoil, sorrow, and joy. I think you feel other emotions too, but those are the, the emotions that we're going to look at for today, for this, for our purposes, right? But our hearts are not only thinking and feeling, but they are also volitional, volitional. They're choosing, they're choosing. In Proverbs 20, verse 5, Proverbs 20, verse 5, Solomon says, a plan in the heart of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding draws it out. Our hearts are purposing. We choose to act based on what we are thinking and feeling. If you go a few chapters back to Proverbs 16, 1 and 2, it says, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. You see, we make plans in our hearts. And these plans aren't invisible. They might be invisible to other people, but they're not invisible to God. He sees our hearts. He can weigh our hearts and, and determine whether our hearts motives are pure or whether they are, uh, whether they're not pure, whether they have uh, some ulterior motives involved. Uh, and God knows what is on our hearts. Right? He can, he can tell. So our hearts are choosing. They can choose to do certain things right? and even choose to say certain things or maybe even withhold certain things. Because our hearts are at the center of what we think, what we feel, and what we choose to do, our hearts can be characterized as our mission control center for our lives. Right? It's where everything happens. It is at the very core of who we are, what we believe, and what we do and why we do what we do. But not only are our hearts our mission control center, they also indicate who we really are. Our hearts also indicate who we really are. Another way to put this is that our hearts are a window into our souls. And go back to that proverb that we opened our time with tonight, Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Because our hearts are so central in who we are, and what we think, what we feel, and what we choose to do, Solomon tells us to watch over our hearts with all diligence because whatever is happening in here affects our lives. Or whatever is happening in our hearts affects our lives. And Jesus indicates the same thing in Matthew 15. Matthew 15. Verses 17 through 20 says this, do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. 
to the things that make us sinners are not the things outside of us, right? That's the issue that Jesus is answering uh, the religious leaders because they're they're challenging him, like, Jesus, why aren't your disciples washing their hands according to the religious way we ought to wash our hands? Because if they don't do that, after they've been around Gentiles, they're going to be unclean. And Jesus is saying, look, guys, it doesn't matter whether you wash your hands in that special way. Or what makes you unclean is not the fact that you've been around unbelievers. What makes you unclean is what is already in your heart, right? So, it's, so the things that make us sinners are not the things that we touch. They're not the people that we come into contact with. They're not, um, it's not because of someone else's influence upon us. It's not our socioeconomic background or even the state of our family growing up. Those things have influence on who we are and what we do, but they don't determine who we are and what we must do. And Jesus wants us to see that any sinful behavior that we might do is not because of the things outside of us, but the things that are originating from our hearts. For example, right, if you are prone to anger, it's not necessarily because of your life circumstances, although your life circumstances certainly influence why you might be angry. If you are prone to anger, it is because anger resides deep in your heart. But even then, even then, anger is not the main problem. It's a fruit of what is already existing in our hearts. But the roots are much deeper, right? And those roots are who we truly are. Now, why is that anger there? What's, what's reflected in our, in our character uh, when we look at the roots? Why is that anger there? Perhaps it's because our hearts are full of pride. And perhaps that pride leads to selfishness and unwillingness to seek the good of others. We would be more than glad to tell people to seek the good of others when it comes to ourselves, but maybe we don't care about them. And that pride can lead to a desire to control and, and manipulate others, to force them to do what we want them to do, when we want them to do it, and how we want them to do it. And if anything gets in the way of this, right, this pride within ourselves that desires an elevation of ourselves, not only in our own eyes, but in the eyes of others, will rise up and cause us to get into conflict with others. Pride is a sneaky thing. Right? Love of self is a, is a sneaky thing. Um, a lot of times, you know, when we want certain things a certain way at a certain time, I mean, some of it's not bad. And some of it's not bad. Like, you know, for instance, for parents, right? if they want their kids to listen to them or to obey them, that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing that they desire. It's a good thing, right? It's something that, that God commands parents to teach their kids to do, right? It's a good thing. But, but if they desire their children's obedience too much and they, will, are, and they are willing to respond sinfully in order to obtain their children's obedience, that can be sinful. They're willing to sin to go get it. Well, then their comfort becomes their God. The desire for peace and quiet becomes their God. Their desire for, uh, for harmony becomes their God. The desire to be left alone becomes their God. Right? And this is just an example for parents. You're not there yet. Or most of us aren't there yet. But even with that example, right, you can see that you can want something good too much. Right? And what's at root in the expression of sin reveals who we are inside, right? impatient, prideful people. And that's just an example 
of how anger can reveal something deeper in our hearts. But hopefully you get that picture, right? That our hearts truly reveal who we are on the inside. It truly reveals who we are on the inside. You might fool other people outwardly, right? You could be nice and super generous to people when you know they're around, but the way that you are inwardly and how that might display itself to people when you are in conflict with others could expose who you truly are. Even the best of us are exposed for who we really are over time. Our hearts prove us to be sinners at our core. But thanks be to God that he cleanses us from our sins and gives us a new heart when we believe in Jesus Christ. So our hearts are our mission control center for our lives. And they also reveal who we really are. But also our hearts reveal who or what we worship. Our hearts reveal who or what we worship. Please turn with me to Matthew 6, 19 to 24. Matthew 6, 19 to 24. Jesus says this. Oh, sorry. I was looking at my Bible and I was looking at verse nine. I'm like, that's not right. Okay, 19, Matthew 6, 19 to 24. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. See, if our hearts are a window into who we are, then it follows that our hearts will also reveal who or what we worship. And Jesus, he rebukes those whose actions prove that money is actually more important to them than God is. Everything about their lives is calculated so that they can have more money in this life. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. God doesn't care if you have money. He graciously grants money. He gives us money. He, and if he gives you the skill set and the gifts to make money, that is something that you can use to his glory. But the temptation might be to have your entire life revolve about around money, not just giving it away, but accumulating more so that you can give it away. And if that, that desire for accumulation and for, for stockpiling becomes too strong, and I can actually reveal that your heart loves money and your heart worships money. And, and instead of God being the one who is at the center of your lives, money is your all-consuming focus with God on the side. It would be, as John Piper puts it, loving the gift more than the giver. Now, if we were to apply this idea to our hearts when it comes to dating and relationships, who or what is captivating your hearts? Are you captivated by and consumed by the thought of a particular individual or even just the idea of being married one day? Are you, be, are you consumed with the idea of being in a relationship so that you're no longer lonely and so that you can find security in being with someone else? You see, even if you wouldn't say that you are consumed with the idea of being in a relationship. Does your heart hurt and doubt God's goodness and love because he has not granted you the desire of your heart? I know I just said probably some piercing things. It's not my intent to kick you while you're down. I want to be sensitive to those of you who are truly doing your best to worship the Lord and not get hung up on the desire for relationships, the desire for marriage. 
I'm not saying at all that it is wrong for you to, to, to desire marriage, nor am I accusing you of being idolatrous, loving the gift over the giver. But we should still strive to take a good look at ourselves, to see whether that might be something that is true in our lives. Do our hearts reflect hearts of trust in God, trust in his goodness, trust in his sovereignty, trust in his love for you? Or do they instead ref reflect a heart that demands satisfaction, a heart that demands marriage? Do our hearts look solely to the approval and acceptance of others to feel like we belong and are a part of community? Do we look solely to the hope of a spouse to provide us security for our future? You see, the line between having right motives for marriage and wrong motives for marriage is pretty thin. Now, by the way, I'm, I'm not promising that if you have good motives that God will honor that and then give you the desire of your heart in the form of marriage. He could and he could not. He could, you know, he could give you marriage or, or he might give you other gifts that you weren't asking for, but that he knows are better for you and will help you live for his glory and the advancement of his kingdom better than you could if you were married. So he could give us those things, right? So I'm not saying to you, have good motives, and then God will bless you and give you a, and give you, uh, give you a family, right? Or uh, give you a spouse, right? You already have a family, right? So uh, I'm not saying that, uh, yeah, obey and God will therefore let you get married. What I am saying is that we have to be mindful of our hearts. We have to uh, not trust our hearts since our hearts are capable of deceiving us too, right? Paul knows that. Um, and so in uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 4, he says, um, he says, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. In 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul is, um, he's talking to the Corinthians and he knows um, that uh, there's a little bit of judgment going on. And what he's, what he is uh, trying to bring out in, in 1 Corinthians 4, 4 is that at least according to his own conscience, he's not aware of any kind of wrongdoing, right? But just because our own consciences do not prick us, just because we're not convicted of any kind of sin, does not mean that we are completely innocent, right? God, the one who sees our hearts, the one who knows our hearts and weighs our motives, he is the one who ultimately judges, right? He is the one who knows whether we truly are blameless or not. So we have to be careful about our heart's ability to deceive us, right? To make us think that we're pure. Our, our ways are pure in our own eyes, but God is the one who judges the motives. He weighs the motives. God has created us to be worshiping beings. Our hearts are naturally inclined to some sort of worship, to worshiping something or someone. Right? And uh, since our, our hearts are vulnerable to false worship, we must guard our hearts. And that brings us to our second question. Our second question, how can we guard our hearts? How can we guard our hearts? Uh, and, you know, up until this point, we've been talking a lot about the importance of understanding our hearts rightly without a lot of focus on how it applies to relationships. For the remainder of our time, as we look at this second question of how can we guard our hearts, we're going to be trying, we're going to try and apply this concept of protecting our hearts, watching over our hearts, guarding our hearts in light of relationships. It, it still might be a little roundabout for you guys, but I want to show you how it's all connected, right? So guarding our hearts starts first with an honest evaluation of our relationship with God. Okay. So in order to make sure that we have healthy relationships with other people, ones that are not elevating them too much in our minds, right, or causing us to obsess over them, uh, too much or obsess over the idea of relationships or marriage too much. It first starts with an honest evaluation of our relationship with God. Whether you are content with your singleness, preparing for dating in the future, 
currently dating, engaged, or even married, we must all start with an honest evaluation of our relationship with God. As I had just mentioned, God created our hearts to worship him. But because of the fall, our hearts are prone to worshiping people or things rather than God. And some of you, you might think that your relationship with God is good. Because you are serving, you are attending in person, and uh, maybe you're even uh, participating in, in some of our midweek fellowship groups. Those are all good things. I'm not trying to, you know, uh, I'm not trying to, to diminish any of those things. But, but, brothers and sisters, are you personally walking closely with God when you do these things? Or are you just doing church things? You know, when, when we're asked about how our relationship with God is, many of us will say, my walk is good. Some of us, we might say that our walk with the Lord could be better. But here's the key question. Does what you say about your walk with God truly reflect the actual state of your walk with God? Right? When you say that it could be better, that's true, right? All of our, our walks with God can be better. Right? But are we saying it could be better, but we're only saying that because we're actually not really doing anything. Right? Like the, the, the last time that we've actually opened our Bibles or our Bible apps was last Sunday during the Sunday message. And, and maybe we heard a sermon or a Christian podcast during the week, or maybe even two or three or more. Right? And it really encouraged us and challenged us. But outside of those times when we were listening to the word of God, where we didn't really think too much about God. We didn't spend personal time with him. And what does your walk with God really look like? Do you prove yourself to be a worshiper of God in all of your life? Or is he just a number one priority in terms of taskless, but not in terms of lifestyle? Is he number one only in terms of taskless, uh, but not lifestyle? And these, this, is, this is a crucial question that we must ask because our relationship with God is so important when it comes to our relationship with other people. It has everything to do with our relationship with other people. Matthew 22. 36 to 40. This is that famous text, that famous interaction where Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? What is Jesus's reply? His reply is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. You see, if your love for God is not right, it's not strong, then the foundation upon which you build your relationship with other people will also have its flaws. Loving others, whether it be loving your friends or growing in love for someone that you are dating, that you're engaged to or married to, or if you want to take it out of the romantic atmosphere for a little bit, loving your parents, right? all of that must be in submission to your first love, your love for the Lord. Your love for the Lord is the foundation upon which all your other loves in the world ought to be based upon. Dr. Ernie Baker, he's a former professor at the Masters University and Seminary, put it this way. If you love others out of your love, commitment, and devotion to the Lord, then you will find it a whole lot easier to love the person, not just because of who he or she is, but even in spite of who he or she is. We can love others when they are difficult because of our even deeper commitment to the Lord. 
You see, how can we make sure that we are putting other relationships in their proper place and are not elevating them to a place where we're all consumed by them, whether it be a particular friendship, right, some particular people that we want to be friends with, or even a romantic relationship. How, how do we do that? How can we make sure that, that these things don't get out of hand? How do we guard our hearts to make sure that we, we're protecting our worship? Well, first, or I mean, not first, by making sure that God truly is first in your life, right? And not that you say God is first in my life and then you go around and you do whatever you want to do. When God truly is first in your life, you will be able to have a proper view of the other person. A proper view of the other person. That does not make them the center of your universe. It lowers them from being at the center to being outside of it. At the center of our relationship should be, uh, the center of our universe should be God. And this is exactly what well-meaning people are trying to do when they encourage you to guard your hearts in, our, in, in your relationships, right? to prevent someone from being your everything. You don't want them to be your everything. Only one person should be your everything. God himself. And, and, and you know what I mean, right? We can love our, our spouses. We can love our children. We can love our friends and our siblings and our parents, but our love for them flows out of our love for God. Right? Our love for everybody else flows out of our love for God. If a person or people become our everything, we've practically booted God off the throne and made people the ones that we worship. And we, we can't say that God is our number one priority when our actions prove that our functional God is either ourselves, our own desire, or other people. And so to guard our hearts, we have to make sure that we have a good understanding of what our relationship with God looks like. And that leads us to the next way we can guard our hearts. We have to have an honest evaluation of why we are attracted to others. An honest evaluation of, of why we are attracted to others. When it comes to guarding our hearts romantically, we tend to think of guarding our hearts only for the purpose of avoiding consequences rather than understanding causes. For example, many Christians have been warned to be careful of how close they get to members of the opposite sex emotionally, right? just in case one thing leads to another and they fail sexually and perhaps even have a baby out of wedlock. And that's good practical advice, but the primary problem is not the emotional bonding. That's a good thing, right? Or even having a baby out of wedlock, right? I don't think any person who has had a baby outside of marriage would say that their baby is a curse. I don't think any of them would say that, that, they're, that they're not grateful for their child or for the life that the Lord has given. We're, we're not saying that. Right? So, so those consequences, even though they're not ideal, right? It, those aren't the problem. But the problem, as we've seen all evening, is a worship problem. The worship of self. The worship of perhaps that other person. The worship of pleasure. The worship of desire over and against the worship of God. Or here's another example. Right, guarding your heart, guarding your emotions so that you do not get hurt if the relationship does not work out. Right, in this particular case, we are being told to have self-control of our emotions, to protect ourselves from greater potential hurt if the relationship does not work out. That's a good thing, right? We want to have self-control over our emotions. You don't want to be the person who is, you know, feeling the weather getting colder and thinking, man, pumpkin spice latte season. I just want cuddles. I just want uh, to be with someone. I want the feeling of being loved. Christmas is right around the corner. I don't want to be alone, right? That's, that's not how you want to be driven. Right? That's not how you want to be driven, right? And, and in this particular example, right, having self-control and not just being whipped around by your emotions or how you feel, right, it's, you know, it's, it's a good thing, um, 
to not to not be uh, whipped around. But you know, in this particular example, what we're what we're trying to get at is not the issue of self-control. Right? Self-control, good, but it's the fact that we're trying to control the situation. Right? We're trying to control the situation and the circumstances so that we won't get hurt. And you know, maybe the other person won't get hurt either. Right? This is noble and well-meaning in intention. But if we are guarding our hearts purely out of a motivation for self-protection, we miss the point. Miss the point. We should aim to guard our hearts so that we can guard our worship. We guard our hearts so that we don't let any person or any emotion or any felt need take the place of God in our lives. We worship God alone. And should God grant us the privilege of dating, then when we are dating, we should be worshiping God together with the other person, trying to run with them together towards greater Christ-likeness. The romantic relationship should not take first place. It is not our end all. We're not just trying to get close to God so that we can be a godly person, so that we can attract the right kind of spouse and live happily ever after with that spouse and our house and our kids and our dog or our cat and going on vacation and going to Giants games or whatever you want to do. And that's not our end all. Our goal is to glorify God in all of our lives, right? And so guarding our hearts is, is basically just a normal part of Christian living, making sure that we're not obsessing over romantic relationships or, or what we want. As we seek then to guard our hearts when it comes to particularly romantic relationships, we have to ask the question, right? We have to ask the question, why am I attracted to particular people? Or, or to put it another way, what am I actually looking for in a spouse? Now, I, I've said to you previously in the first date uh, sermon that what we are looking for is character. And that is still true. That is still true. But in light of guarding our hearts, guarding our worship, we're going to look at attraction from a different angle, a slightly different angle. And here are some crucial evaluation questions that we can look at that might help us see, uh, might help us expose idols in our hearts right? reveal some of those areas of, of some false worship. Number one, is my attraction just for the physical? Or am I attracted to who this person is spiritually as well? Number two, is this attraction to this person more important than my relationship with the Lord? Do I delight in Jesus first and foremost, or am I more interested in that other person? And number three, am I attracted to this person out of some sense of neediness? Am I attracted to this person out of some sense of neediness? See, being attracted to someone is not bad in and of itself. God gave us these desires for others as a gift. He wants us to enjoy life. However, if these desires grow beyond what is healthy, grow beyond what is God-honoring, then we are in danger of loving God's gifts more than loving God himself. And we ask ourselves these questions because attraction, uh, or, or sorry, we ask ourselves this question about attraction because it can be so easy. It can be so easy to have an out of balance perspective on another person. And Paul shows us in Romans 1.25 that as a result of sin, right, our hearts easily worship other people rather than the creator. And we've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We've worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. As we live our entire lives as an act of worship to God, that means that we have to submit our desires to him too. Or we want to think God's thoughts about relationships. We want to honor him with how we approach relationships. We want to, to please him in everything. Right? Even if God does allow for pain and heartbreak to enter into our lives, may I gently remind you of his sovereignty? 
may I gently remind you of his love for you. I don't know why God sometimes allows for relationships to start well, and then they blow up in our faces. I don't know why God does not allow for those who strongly desire marriage in a family to get married. What I do know is this. What I do know is this. And our God loves you. Psalm 34, 18 tells us that Yahweh is near to the brokenhearted. And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. In Psalm 27, verse 13 to 14, David writes, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. You see, in both these psalms, David is facing great trials and great pain. Enemies are coming after him. They're seeking his life. And note well, note well that I am not saying that singleness is your enemy and is, is, is surrounding you uh, and trying to cause you to despair. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not trying to make that, that connection. But the principle that I'm trying to draw out from these psalms is the heart of trust in God, even in the face of an uncertain future, and even in the face of adversity. Because in both of these psalms, with his life on the line, David is fully aware of the challenges that he faces, but he endeavors to remind himself of the truth, even though there was hurt. And in a similar way, right, we can follow David's example in hurt, and we can remind ourselves of the goodness of God. You know, as we remember from Romans 8.28, God works all things together for our good, for those who love him. But then, okay, you can't forget verse 29. Verse 29 reminds us that part of that good that God works, that work, that God works everything in our lives for is the fact that we are conformed to the image of his son. That is our greatest good. And that is our greatest good. It's not always going to be fun. It's not going to be painless. But God is in control every step of the way. So that in our victories and even in our failures, we can be conformed more and more into the image of Christ. And that's not just for ourselves, but it's so that we can minister to other people too. In 2 Corinthians 1.4, we're going to end with this. In 2 Corinthians 1.4, Paul writes this. Uh, and he's talking about God who, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in, a, in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God sometimes allows for us to grow in trials. Our pain is not something that we should just hate or try to avoid altogether because God sovereignly uses that to make us more like Christ. And sometimes he uses that so that we can help other people become more like Christ too. Well, in conclusion, this evening, we've asked two questions that help guide our exploration of what it means to guard our hearts. We emphasize our hearts because our hearts are our mission control center for life. They indicate who we really are, and they reveal who or what we worship. We also look at how we can guard our hearts by having honest evaluations of our relationship with God and our relationship with others. There is so much more that I really want to say on this topic, uh, you know, guarding our hearts uh, in different facets as well, but we're just going to have to leave that for next week when we talk about uh, what God's word has to say about sexual failures. But as we close our time tonight, please, please remember that guarding our hearts is not solely about protecting us from unpleasant circumstances. God sovereignly works through all of our circumstances, even the unpleasant ones, to make us like Christ. The reason why we guard our hearts in our lives and in our relationships is because we're guarding our hearts from false worship. Our love for God drives how we love other people. Our attraction to others must be through the lens of loving God. So with that in mind, let's pray.
and we'll have our discussion groups. Father, we're grateful for just your word, for how it uh, challenges us to think more about what goes on inside our hearts. Father, we recognize that our hearts are complex, uh, that they are thinking, that they are feeling, and that they are choosing. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to fill our hearts with your word so that we might choose the right things, so that we might think the right things, and thus inform our feelings so that the things that we choose to do are things that are pleasing to you. We pray, Father, that uh, you would help us, Lord, to avoid uh, having a heart of suspicion towards others when it comes to guarding our hearts, but instead that we would uh, focus primarily on our relationship with you and, and figuring out how to, uh, uh, or, or what it might even mean to uh, have healthy relationships with people of the opposite gender. After all, you've, you've made us one people. You've brought us together so that we can be unified, not so that we can separate ourselves in, in an attempt to, uh, to try and, and put up a front of purity just because we don't even talk to the opposite sex. So Father, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to, as a result, uh, desire to guard our hearts properly, to have good and healthy relationships that flow out of a love for you. Thank you, Father, for this time. It's in your sentence that we pray. Amen. Well, we have some discussion questions for you this evening. Number one, what are some potential competing objects of worship in our lives? So identify, what are those things in your life that threaten to take up more of your attention than it ought to? Right? Is it success? Is it security? Is it relationships? Is it pleasing people? or whatnot. Uh, question number two, how could loving God help us counter any temptations to want relationships too much or to doubt God's goodness if relationships do not come? And so those are our discussion questions this evening. Uh, have a good time of discussion. I will see you later.